Good. All right. Hi. How are you? I have a lot of questions for you. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll have some answers. And if I don't know them, I'll make them up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Shift M podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Andy Hunt, who we know for, first of all, of course, the, the famous book, which is called The Pragmatic Programmer. Uh, the second one is the Agile Manifesto, who most of you know, and some of you love, and some of you don't. We're going to discuss that later. And of course, the the Tons of books which were published by the agency, which was found by, by Andy, called the Pragmatic Bookshelf. So a lot of respect to you, Andy, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So my first question, the most interesting for me is, um, uh, do you think uh, we still, the, the young people who are now listening to us, they still need to think the way you were thinking 20 years ago when you were trying to, well, when you're publishing your book. 20 years ago, you, your book made your career, I believe. And at that time, we didn't have so many books written in the, in, in the style you wrote your book. And the, the market was pretty, you know, more empty than now. Now we have tons of books. So is it still worse for a young programmer to actually think about developing the career that way, about publishing a book? Yes, um, I definitely think so. And, and, and I, I find it funny. It's like, you know, do you, you know, is this valid for young people? It, it's valid for old people too. Um, <laughs> you know, and there's, there's two, there, there's two angles to that. The, um, the stuff that we published in the pragmatic programmer back at the turn of the century, cough, cough, um, <laughs> was, you know, we wanted to put Dave Thomas and I who, who wrote the book, we wanted to put that the learnings that we'd had from being consultants and working out in the field, you know, we kept seeing the same mistakes that teams and, and developers would make over and over again. And we thought, you know, our, our initial thought was we just write a little white paper of, you know, tips, you know, here's the things we see people doing in current practice that's, that's not effective for them. And here's some suggestions of how to get around that. And that, that grew into the book. And the funny thing is, here 20 years later, uh, we just came out with the 20th anniversary edition of it um, last year, the, we had to change very little in the book 20 years on. You know, There was references back then to the build machine sitting in the corner, which now is a pipeline in the cloud. I mean, so you know, tech marches on, you know, a lot of the languages weren't, weren't useful. Um, you know, a lot of experimental languages we had, had referred to and spoke of, no one's heard of now, they, they came and went, and new interesting languages are out like Rust and Elixir and, you know, these sorts of things. So we had to make those sorts of changes. But by and large, the, the advice all stayed the same, because we're all still the same. It, it's the same people, people with the same, you know, uh, default cognitive biases that, that we all share and, you know, all of, all of our foibles as humans, that's all the same. And that's what keeps tripping us up and running into trouble. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, writing that book really uh, launched mine and, and Dave's career. And that was why we started uh, the Pragmatic Bookshelf, because, you know, for really twofold. For on the one hand, we wanted to get good, valuable information out into the hands of everyday developers. And at the time, that was really rare. And now, in a way, it's almost even more rare, because a lot of the stuff that's out there is either someone trying to sell you something, you know, there's, there's some agenda behind it, uh, sponsored by a big corporation, or it's, you know, it's really interesting little open source project that has three committers, 
And, you know, there's not a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, you know, a lot, you can find a lot of YouTube videos saying, here's how you should do this and here's how you should do that. And they're just flat ass wrong. It's not even a matter of opinion. They're just wrong. So I think it's, you know, as you, as you mentioned, there's a wealth of resources out there today, but sifting through them and finding the ones that are really valuable versus just the, you know, the faff, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's much harder to determine that. So we still, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the book is dead and, you know, everyone's videos or this or that. Um, no, that's rubbish. Uh, people still want well-curated books written by, you know, experts who've been there and who know how to get stuff done in whatever their environment of choice is, whether it's, it's, it's Rust or it's Elixir, or it's Java or it's Python or, or what have you. Um, and that is still, you know, getting that look inside the mind of an expert or even just someone who's very proficient at the skill stack that you're working on, that's hugely valuable. Uh, and not even just to the reader, but if you want to learn something, you know, really learn it solidly, the best thing you can do is give a talk on it, write a book on it, write an article on it. Because as soon as you start writing down what you think you know, you, you begin to realize, you know, the holes in your knowledge. Like, well, how does, you know, I've always done it this way. Why am I doing that? Does this really work? Is there a better way to do this? Is it, you know, you know so on and so on. So, you know, those are kind of the main uh, drivers, I think, uh, as to why, you know, the Pragmatic Bookshelf is still, you know, a very successful tech publisher. Um, it's still independent. It's not, not owned by, you know, any large corporation trying to force their product down your throat, unlike <clears throat> some others that will remain nameless. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that kind of independence is, is rare these days, I think. You know, in one of the videos you, I watched your interviews, you're saying that when you started this, this white paper, as you said, that was like not a book, but still a white paper, you just sent it to Edison Wesley. And then they said, okay, we're going to publish that. Uh, that sounds like a tremendous success. I don't think that. That was, that was remarkable. And I, I still don't know whether to file that under success or blind luck or good timing, or it was just the right thing at the right time. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had no intent of really writing a book at first. You know, it was, it was just this paper, but it started like every software project, right? It started growing uh, and getting bigger. And um, uh, someone said, well, you know, if you're really serious about a book, you know, who's your favorite publisher? It's like, oh, well, I, don't, I have no idea. And, and they gave us the very sage advice. They said, well, go look on your bookshelf. You know, look at look at your bookcase and whose books do you have? And we looked, and of course, at the time that was the Gang of Four book, and you know all these all the the, the you know classic titles from Madison Wesley at the time. And so, yeah, we we literally blind emailed the uh, uh, the editor for the, the computers and tech series or whatever they called it at the time uh, with our proposal and you know a sample of the white paper. And we figured when Dave and I sent that, we thought that okay. Of course, we've never written a book before. We know nothing about this. They'll they'll dismiss it out of hand. I mean, this is like going to Random House and saying, "Well, I've got a book about this young wizard, and you know, will you publish this?" And, yeah, go away, kid. Right? Um, but we figured we'd get some good constructive feedback from it, and and then we would know better what to do next time. And to our yeah <laughs> shock and maybe a little dismay, they were like, "No, we'll take it. When when can we have it?" It's like, wow, 
Huh. How does it work now with the bookshelf, with the pragmatic bookshelf? Can I do the same? You, me, or somebody who is listening to us now, can we do the same with the pragmatic bookshelf? Just send an email. Absolutely. Just send an email. There's a, if you go to pragprog.com, there's a, a section in the menu bar if you want to be an author. And um, there's a, a recommendations on what kind of format to send the stuff in and that, that kind of thing. But we get, uh, up until very recently, we got, you know, the lion's share of all of our submissions exactly like that, just from, you know, average developers who had something passionate they wanted to write about, something they discovered, something that they really enjoyed, you know, uh, well, I really like working in Clojure and I want to show people how to, how to do a web uh, uh, you know, thing in, in closure. I really love doing this in Rust, or I really love this in you know, whatever, uh, NoSQL databases, you know, whatever the topic might be. The key to that is it's something they're passionate about. And that's what really makes the difference. So I'm you don't need to be, a, you don't need to be a standard, you know, you don't need to be a published author or anything. Right. How often do you reject these guys? Uh, a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, cause you know, it's, it's, it's like any other uh, uh, kind of bell curve, I suppose. Um, we'll get submissions um, in any given week that range the gamut from, you know, really well thought out, well crafted, you know, this is clearly some at the top of their game versus, you know, somebody who maybe knows how to turn the computer on and says, hey, I want to write a book. And, and there's no, there's no meat behind it, you know. Um, but one thing I do, we do tell people is, and it's different about the pragmatic bookshelf, maybe from some other uh, publishers. We have development editors that work with you to develop the text as you go. So if you're not a professional teacher, a professional writer, and I mean, most of us are developers, right? So these aren't necessarily skills we have. Uh, that's what our development editors help you with. They help get that, that information out of the subject matter expert's head and onto the paper in our style which has worked, you know, very well though these past several decades um, to help people, you know, get up to speed on, you know, pretty complex topics uh, relatively quickly. And if you compare my option of going to Amazon and doing self-publishing, which I do, I published five books over the last four years, and uh, the option of going to a publisher like your agency, which one is better for me as, a, as an author? I'll, I'll give the consult, <clears throat> excuse me, the consultant's answer. It depends. Um, for the most part, you're better off going with an established publisher for one major reason, and that's audience reach. Because, you know, even, even as a, as a well-known person myself, the bookshelf is maybe more well-known and has a wider, uh, base. Um, we have access to the development editor experts who have done tens, sometimes hundreds of these titles. They know how to do it. You know, we have our stable of all the um, sort of support, support personnel, copy editing, proofreading, typesetting, all these things. Uh, and, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because I, I too have self-published books on Amazon. So I, I in addition to the tech books, which I, I go through uh, Pragmatic Bookshelf, obviously, but I also write science fiction uh, and I just wrote a thriller uh, a, psych a psycho, supernatural, psychological thriller uh, called Weatherly Hall. That was my question. You published it not through Pragmatic Bookshelf, so you published through other right. books. Because it's, 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 it's a fiction book. Um, so I didn't really want to you know, cross the stream. So I've done all the, the sci-fi and, and stuff on my own. And, you know, it's, it's harder because now you have to do everything on your own. You have to line up 
the cover artist, the copy editor, the thing. You've got to do all the scheduling. You've got to get someone to typeset it or typeset it yourself. You've got to do all the marketing. You've got to do, you know, everything that a company would do for you, you got to do yourself. I mean, you've done it, you know, you, 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 you're, you're, you know, chief cook and bottle washer. It all, it all falls to you. Um, and, you know, depend, you know, for the fiction books, I'm kind of comfortable doing that because there is just straight text. You know, there's not a lot of formatting, not a lot of code samples to keep up, you know, all the kind of other stuff. But for a tech book, that starts to get a lot to have to manage, you know, because now not only are you writing and debugging the code that you're writing and making sure that that code is right and it's in the book and it's typeset correctly. And on top of the marketing and, and getting review copies and getting reviewers and having your mom say nice things about you on Amazon with a five-star review and, and, you know, all of that. I, I mean, you can do it, but, you know, for time is the, is the one thing we never have enough of. And, you know, overall, and I think for my next book, I think I will, you know, find an agent and, and get my next um, fiction book published through a regular publisher, because given X number of hours in the day, I'd rather spend that learning and writing not trying to figure out why that page break on, on, you know, page 27 doesn't look right in this EPUB reader on Android because someone complained about it, right? I mean, because this, if you're doing it yourself, that's the kind of morass you get, uh, you get sucked into amongst, you know, everything else. You know, Amazon's now upping their prices on this and, and cutting your percent and they're doing this and that. And, um, you know, and the other thing is, speaking of Amazon, any major publisher gets a much sweeter deal with Amazon than you as an individual do. Um, and not even just in terms of royalty, but in terms of sales support, um, you know, in terms of uh, going after piracy violations, copyright violations. I mean, the whole, the whole business aspect to it, a major publisher has deeper relations and access to more resources than any individual does. So, you know, yeah, you can do it yourself. I've done it myself. You've done it yourself. Um, but, you know, I, th I think, you know, again, given the hours in the day, I'd rather have someone else do all that crap for me. And, and I'd rather focus on the writing. You know, as you mentioned, Amazon, I can tell you a, a story and I would like your opinion about this. I have a friend who wrote a book probably in the beginning of this year with another publisher, not Edison Wesley and not the, the bookshelf. And he published that book and that book became like in the top 10 on Amazon. And it stays in top 10. It stayed from top 10 for like, I think four months or five months. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of copies were sold because of that. So I was telling to this guy that probably your book is on top because you went through a famous publisher. So probably there's a, some kind of a, some kind of a deal between this publisher and Amazon. So they, they, you know, my point is that that book would not be in top 10 if you would just do it self-publishing. So am I That's right? It, it's, it's correct, but it's not, it's not as linear as that. So it's not, that there, it's not that any publisher has, uh, you know, one secret recipe or one bit of secret sauce. It's that they've got 37 little fingers into Amazon in different ways with different resources. And, and, you know, I mean, it's their business, right? They know how to do this. They have professionals who do this all day long. You know, you or I want to write a press release for our new book. You know, we've done that a few times, maybe a dozen times person at a major publisher, they've done this hundreds of times, thousands of times. They, they, they know what to do, where to send it, how to get the reaction that you want. Um, 
so you know it's 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 funny really i mean it comes it's the same kind of issue with uh, software development teams you know it comes down to the fact that there's really no shortcuts you know if you want something done well or even world class you know you can't just buy that 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 that's something you've got to cultivate and grow and build up and if that's if that's your business and you're doing that that's great you know, and the rest of us will we'll buy it from you as a service. You know, it doesn't make sense for us to try to, to, you know, reinvent that wheel ourselves necessarily. So there is no like secret deal between Amazon and this publisher when the publisher oh, might be, oh, might be. <laughs> could be. I mean, I, I have, I have no evidence either way. Um, you know, and, but that's the thing. I mean, it, you know, any big company with their vendors and their suppliers, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but again, it's probably not one thing. It's probably a dozen different things that all contribute and add up um, and make it work. Is it possible for, again, consider a young, I mean, not the age-wise, but, uh, you know, career-wise, the young person who, who has not published anything before, and now this person is thinking about writing a book, is it is there some money down the road for this for this person or it's pure altruism and pure publicity or something like that? It again, it really depends on the subject matter and the timing. Um, it can be very decent money. I mean, we've had authors who make, you know, six figures uh, quite but, easily. But can you give uh, some examples like six figures, like what, per year, per month? What? Uh, over a th maybe a three year, two year, two year, three year time span. You know, the kind of life of a tech book is often relatively short because, you know, you know versions change. So like $10,000, $10,000 a year is possible. Oh, $100,000 a year is possible. 100000 Wow. 250 a year is possible. If, with you know, with, with, if, you, if, it's, if it's a popular hot tech topic that everyone's into. Um, but again, timing is everything. Uh, I remember one of the very early books that I wrote um, for the bookshelf was on unit testing and we put out a version in java which was fine but it was so close to, to c sharp it's like well let's make a c sharp version as well and try and get you know the microsoft crowd into it and so we we you know we put out the the, the c sharp version of unit testing in java and it stiffed you know, it didn't sell anything because that community wasn't there yet you know, it was one of those things where, you know, they'd heard about it and these other, you know, those, those Java folks over there were doing it, but it wasn't, it wasn't really part of that culture yet. A couple of years later, maybe five years later, I'd, I'd have to look, but some, some number of years later, um, we got some, some more help on it. We came up with a second edition. And by then the community was, was receptive to it. It's like, oh yes, yes, this is something we want to do. And then it sold very well. Um, so you just never know. We've got some books, especially some of the um, more methodology-oriented books that don't sell a lot every year, but they sell consistently every single year. And over 15, 20-year time span, that, you know, that adds up a lot uh, because that kind of uh, material doesn't go out of date. With a, with a point release like it might on, on some tech stack. So you have some kind of perennial books that just sit there and chug along quite happily throwing off cash. Well, that's cool. These numbers are really gonna motivate people. Uh, you know, I've heard stories that uh, if you go self-publishing like I did, then the doors are closed for me for all the public the, the publishing agencies. So nobody will accept me now because I made a mistake of going to this self-publishing road. Is it true? Um, 
I have heard that. Um, and again, I think I think it depends. If so, if you have a title that you have self-published, most often no other publisher will then take it. They they won't take and adopt it and do it, especially not in fiction. Um, there's a bit of an exception. You know, people will put stuff up on LeanPub, which isn't really a publisher, but it's it's you know, a, a distributor, I suppose, might be a better phrase. Um, and people will, you know, some publishers will go in and take that, will take, you know, the, the bookshelf will go in and take what's on LeanPub and consider it a draft and then, you know, maybe work with the author and, and beef it up and, and come out with a better version. In a couple of cases, they've taken it as is. It was a really good, uh, a really good effort. But yeah, for the most part, for a given title, if you decide to do it yourself, you're going to be doing it yourself. It, it, that no one else is going to touch it. But that doesn't mean you can do you can do something different with your next title. So it's it's not like you don't get branded as an author that you've self published. You self published that title. Okay, well we don't want that. But if you wrote something similar, then you could go to a, a larger publisher with you know that or a completely different idea, and it's you know that's fine. That that's like a separate. Uh, it's a totally separate entity. I think their logic is that, uh, for example, I come to you with my next book and I and you take this book and you publish it, you start promoting this book and you automatically promote my other books because a lot of investments you make into marketing will automatically affect me as an author and people will go to Amazon and see, okay, one book published by the bookshelf and there are five books published by, but they don't care who published them, they just buy everything and, you know, that's kind of logic. I think they, the publishers... I I think there's there's a little bit of that, and some of it is just is just practicalities, um, especially with retail book publishing, where you've got a publisher, you've got a distributor, you've got bookstores like Barnes and Noble uh, and, and independents. Um, you start getting into uh, just practical limitations, like you know you have to know that this book comes from this distributor. You can't have more than one distributor, whoever you are. If, if you're Random House, if you're Simon Schuster, if you're O'Reilly, if you're Addison Wellesley, if you're us, every publisher has you know, basically one distributor and you can't change, you can change that over a course of you know, months or years, but you can only have one at a time because otherwise the, there'd be chaos in the bookstores as they try to figure out where to get the book from. So there's some practical concerns just with the supply chain of, this is how it works. And these things were set up in the, you know, maybe the twenties or the thirties and um, they've stayed that way. <laughs> you know? So, you know, at, at, at its heart, um, you know, publishing is an industry that's very reluctant to change. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of publishers were very late to the ebook party. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, Kodak was, was late to uh, digital photography. They're like, oh, it's fine. We'll just make paper and film. Well, that didn't work out so well for them. Um, and it didn't work out well for, for publishers. Um, I distinctly remember, and I've, I've told the story before, but um, Dave and I went to a, a, a publishing conference in the early days of the book the bookshelf. And they were, the publishers in general were just trying to come to grips with how do we get our content out into EPUB uh, and Mobi formats? And, and I think there were some others at the time, but you know, how do we get our, for, our, our content out in these formats? And there was a whole cottage industry doing file conversion. And it was the top, you know, a topic of all these, these uh, talks at the, at the conference and all these products. It was this whole big deal. 
And and literally we're sitting there in the audience and, and Dave on his laptop, like takes the text of one of our books, makes an EPUB, makes a Mobi, sitting there on the Wi-Fi in the conference hall, because for us, it was no big deal because we started off mostly knowing we wanted to do that. Um, but even before that, we had a common format for all of our books. So it was easy for us to say, okay, well, now we'd like to produce this and basically just add that as a back end. Whereas the other publishers had to contend with getting manuscripts in Word, in FrameMaker, in InDesign, in Pod with Perl, in Markdown, in, you know, Sanskrit written on a, on a rock. I mean, you know, you name it. <laughs> Do you, do you compete for authors? I mean, I know the answer will be yes, but so let me rephrase. How do you compete for authors? So, yes, the, 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 the problem is there is a small number of really technically good people in the world. There is a small number of people who can express their thoughts and write and teach very well. The Venn diagram intersection of those two is really small. <laughs> Not a lot of us out there. Um, and so, yeah, every publisher is kind of clamoring for, you know, not even just the next author, but the next hit series, something like, like a Heads First or, you know, R7 and 7 or, you know, you know one of these, these um, you know, like the XP series with Addison Wesley back, back in the day. Um, and, but, and yet, quite a few of our brethren publishers treat their authors they, they treat them horribly. They spit them up. They chew them out. They screw them over on the contract. They, they do questionably legal things with, with the rights and the contracts. And, and I didn't, we knew none of this uh, until we'd started the business and we'd have authors come to us from other publishers with these amazing tales. And, and honestly, the first, I don't know, dozen or so were like, oh, well, they're, they're just being sour grapes, surely you know, such and such company can't be that bad. And then you get, you know, the fourth or fifth person coming to you with the exact same story. And it's like, wow, okay. Um, and that's always amazed me because, you know, we, we work in the knowledge business, right? As a publisher, even as a software developer too, but as a publisher, our raw material is authors. We can't, you know, we're small. We can't afford to spit up and chew out you know, good authors. So we treat our authors really well. I mean, to us, they're, they're really almost family. Um, and so toward that end, we pay a 50%, half, five, zero, 50% royalty on our books. Most other major publishers pay 12, 15, something like that. You pay 50, really? 50%, really. Now there's, I mean, I could, that's not really a catch. Um, some publishers will pay in advance. So you get a pile of cash, maybe they'll give you $5,000 up front, but the dirty secret is 80 to 90% of their titles never earn that back. So they give you a pile of money up front and you never see another royalty from them. That, that's, and, and I wasn't really aware of this either when we started. Uh, that was something we sort of learned as we went along. It's like, wow, that, that doesn't sound you know, very cool. Um, so we don't pay any advance, but we just pay half of what we get. And whether that's through retail channel, whether it's direct off our website, whether it's through a translation partner, you know, if you want your, your title, uh, some a foreign publisher wants your title published in, you know, uh, Polish or Japanese or um, Australian or, you know, wherever, <laughs> wherever it might be. Um, yeah, we, you know, and whatever comes in, you, we split it with the authors. It's, it's that simple.
This is a surprise to me because I talked to another publisher before I decided to go to Amazon and do self-publishing. I, I had a, 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 a contract actually, a draft of a contract with the publisher and there was a 14%. So I compared 14 with the 55 on Amazon and of course Amazon sounds more. But if you offer 50, then there is no reason to do self-publishing because of this 5%, you definitely yep. you know, offer a market. And you get, you get a, a, a development editor, you get all the support staff, the cover design, the typesetting, you know, the whole the whole package. Um, and that's, that's why we're still in business, um, you know, here 20 years on. Um, yeah, I mean, you've seen the statistics, most startups fail after, you know, two, three, four years at some, some small number. Um, but we've been able to carry on through, you know, recessions, pandemics, <laughs> whatever. Um, because, you know, we, we treat our editors, we treat our authors, like friends and family, because in often cases they are. We you know we've known these people a long time. Uh, we've been through, you know, thick and thin together. Um, we don't treat them like you know some kind of fungible resource of just and you know try to screw them out of every last little nickel. And there's you know plenty of other folks who are very willing to do that, and that is their business model. But you know we don't. Yeah, the numbers actually speak for themselves. So definitely fifty percent. That's amazing. And um, do you? Uh, do you influence the authors? Imagine the situation, I write a book about Java and I come to you and I, in my book, I say things which contradict what other books say. For example, I say, don't do this in Java because I believe this is a bad practice. But traditionally people think this is a good practice. For example, you take a look at the gang of four design patterns and they suggest to use this and that. But I write a book and say, this is wrong. Don't do what they, they suggested many years ago. So my book is different. Will you reject that book? Even if it's written, no. Well. Actually, that that would be that'd be good reason for us to want to publish it. Um, we have a lot of advice that is maybe contrarian to the mainstream, but we don't just take the author's word for it. So when the you know for for any any title that goes through several uh, stages of review and stages of technical review, so something like that would be passed by other figures in the community who would say, yeah, yeah, we're starting to see this. We think this is you know he's onto something here or no, they're they're completely paddling up the wrong thing. Have you know ask them this, that, and the other, and give us points to discuss. Um, and in some fast-moving uh, technologies, especially like a, a Elixir or Rails, we've had things like that at the last minute, where it's like, okay, well, the community had been saying do this sort of thing, and now they're they're changing at the last minute. Are they really? Is is this <laughs> is this really a change? Is this just another you know flash in the pan? And you know, we we try to get as many opinions in as we can, and and try to um, get some sort of consensus to figure. Okay, is the author just making this up, or is this you know is this something real? So the uh, and the other the other half of that is what keeps everybody honest. When your book is at some specific point done, and we've changed the number, but call it seventy eighty percent, something like that. When your book's mostly done. Uh, we'll go ahead and print the beta version of it, just like beta software. And, you know, we, we really, you know, ran with and kind of pioneered this concept. Um, and other folks have copied us off, you know, other folks have, have rough cuts and, and, you know, various other flavors of it. But the advantage is, once you start selling the beta version of the book, the author is still working on it. So if something uh, like that goes out where it is, uh, you know, a contrarian nature or, or something a little different from what common practices, people who bought the book will tell us and <laughs> say, oh, yo, this is great. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Or, 
are you sure? You know, this seems a little bit wackadoodle, uh, but we'll get feedback uh, from it. And then the author can, can change course as, as, they, as they see fit. Um, and the other nice part about this is once the book goes in beta, the author is getting uh, royalties from it right away. You're not waiting six months or a year. Um, my wife wrote a, a textbook in nursing informatics, a classic textbook in the, that field, as it turns out. And watching her go through the process with an academic publisher was like trying to tow a glacier from Iceland by your teeth. I mean, it was unbelievable. And they went through all these you know, hoops, as, as you'd expect, with a large bureaucratic you know, these folks were in business back in the time of Gutenberg and damn it, they're not going to change anything, you know, these days. Um, but they had, uh, she and her co-authors had, had submitted the final manuscript and their editor's like, thanks, that's great. You know, we'll have proof copies for you in about 12 to 14 months. And I'm, and I'm I literally, right, my jaw's on the floor. It's like, what the hell are you going to be doing for, you know, <sighs> anyway, so... Yeah. So, do you sell, did I understand it right? So you sell these beta copies to beta readers, right? Not to everybody, not on the... To everybody. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're, they're for sale on the website. And the idea is you buy the beta copy and you get all the updates as the author makes them. And then you get the final copy when the final copy is ready. Well, so, it's, so you're just, you're buying the book. You're just buying in early. So there'll be two books, basically. I buy the early version and then when the final version is out, I get this for free or how does it work? Yeah, it's 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 all the same. It's all the same book. So you, you get updates to it. So you might get the first, you know, say PDF or EPUB file that's labeled beta zero. And then two, three weeks later, you get beta one and it's got a new chapter in it. And then a couple of weeks later, you get beta two and beta three. And, and this chapter now has revisions and they changed this example because that code didn't run on a Timex Sinclair 80. And you, you know, you put this thing and oh, like, there's a new chapter at the end. And oh, now it's got a table of contents. Now it's got an index, whatever. You know, it goes through the bits. And then you get uh, one day you get a file and it says this is P1 or P0. I think we probably started P0. I don't know. But print the first printing. So you get the, you know, the first one of that. Um, and very often, you know, we will provide, we provide free updates through the life of that edition. So, you know, six months in, you've gotten the, uh, whether you bought beta or not, you bought the printed, you bought the, uh, the ebook version and there's been some sea change. Well, we're no longer using CoffeeScript or we're doing this or we're doing that, whatever it might be. And you get P2, you get P3 with, you know, errata fixed and, you know, whatever changes are made. And we'll keep that up as long as we can. At some point for any technology, you know, you have to go to a new edition because they've changed, you know, it goes from rail six to seven or, you know, whatever it might be. And the author has to put in enough, you know, months of effort. It's like, okay, that's, that's a new book. Now we're going to, we're going to start over and, and go from there. But even then we always give like a discount coupon for previous buyers. So they're not, you know, they're not hit up for the, uh, the whole amount again, but, yeah, that's one of those things where we want to be fair to the author for the time they've put into it, but we want to be fair to the customers as well. So they don't have to do it. So, you know, things like that, we try to balance as best we can. And who is making the final decision to publish the book, to accept it or to, to, to not publish? Is it you or we have a committee for that? There, there is a committee. Um, there's a proposals committee that that's, that's what they do. They, they go through the proposals and they discuss the various technical merits uh, the stylistic merits, the, you know, the clarity of expression, you know, all these sorts of things. They look at the, at the proposal 
And, you know, it's, it's, it is rare to get a proposal that's perfect in every way. Right. It's like, well, this guy really knows what he's talking about. You know, this, 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 this girl's manuscript is perfect, but, and, you know, this person can't write very well. This person writes very well, but they don't know what they're talking about. You know, any combination, um, you know, we've probably seen it. We've gotten some absolutely beautiful looking manuscripts that, that were very professionally done and beautiful graphics and just absolutely devoid of content, <laughs> you know, just empty air. Um, and we've gotten some really rough and crude, uh, uh, you know, not very well written, but, but boy, they explained it really well. I you know, really liked the, the examples they used. I really liked the, the um, you know, their thinking behind it, but they clearly aren't adept at expressing themselves. Well, we can fix that. that that's what a development editor's for. So it, it depends. And, and literally, we've seen everything in every combination you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and how large this proposal has to be? If somebody decides to submit to you, this is going to be 10 pages, 100 pages, how big? This, um, the actual uh, guidelines are on the website, and they change every few years. But it's, it's, it's not 100 pages. It's usually on the order of, of a sample chapter of, I'm going to say, 10, 15, 20 pages, something on that, uh, on that order. Um, and you know, there's, there's, uh, other questions, you know, why did you want to write this? Who's, who's the audience? Were you writing it for, you know, why should we be excited about this? Um, I think that question is buried in there somewhere, but that's really the important. Why are you excited about this? What, what makes you get up in the morning and be like, I want to go write on this book project. I want to go work on this because this is just so cool. You know, I love this no sequel. I love this live view. I love this, you know, log for J remediation or whatever, whatever your bag is. Um, you know, why does, why is it exciting and why would anyone else be excited about it? Um, and that's really the key question. And, and if you have a, if you have a compelling answer to that, um, you know, that goes a long way. So you are sitting basically, uh, on the stream of the most interesting and the most brave ideas which people are ready to to write about so you're like a dispatcher so you're accepting them from everywhere in the world and you decide which ideas deserve to be to be visible and which are so my question to you what are the trends that sounds really cool when you put it that way let me just say i i feel like i should be a, a you know blowfeld in one of the double o bond you know double o seven bond movies stroking the white cat and <laughs> cackling but <laughs> But, but my question is, what trends do you see? You, you've been doing this for 20 years. So what, ha what, what do you see is happening over the last 10 years? Let's see, where are we moving? We, we write more about programming languages, or we write more about management, or we stop writing about management. Like, what, what trends are obvious for you? Yes, all those. Um, so, so the thing is, all these, all these topics have sort of their season. You know, they, they kind of come and go. And... You th but they're never gone forever. So, you know, there was a time where everybody and their dog wanted to write a methodology book. And most of them were frankly garbage. Uh, because it, in fact, we, had, we even had a code name for that. I think, I think Dave Thomas coined it. We'd get a book that you'd say, well, this is basically what I did on my summer vacation. It was a summer vacation book. So I know it's, it was a case study with, with a sample size of one. And, you know, this one, one person, this one group did this one project at one place and, and it didn't suck. And now they want to say, hey, you know, the secret is you have to have orange soda at lunch because that's what worked for us. You know, this kind of thing. Um, and it's, you know, that kind of proposal never goes away. 
but it's interesting to see, you know, you know, there'll be a time span where you'll get an awful lot of those and then it'll sort of die down and then it'll flare back up and then it'll die down. Um, and then you'll, you'll get things like, I think when, when safe was first um, sort of bandied about as a, as a method cough, um, we'd get a lot of proposals saying, Hey, here's how to be successful with safe. And then people realized that you couldn't be, and that it was a scam. And then, then we don't get many proposals on that anymore because a, no one's interested in it, and B, the people who are suffering with it, uh, from what I hear, uh, are suffering mightily. It's it's not going well for them. So you get you get some things like that. Um, new languages are always everyone's always interested in, the, in a new language because every language has its strengths and its weaknesses, and sometimes you're aware of what those are. Sometimes it's a surprise. Um, so we're always looking for a language that where we're better able to express ourselves uh where it's you know you're trying to balance you want something that's less verbose but you want to be able to understand it you want something that's easy enough to pick up but you you, you know you don't want to be so complicated something like like a haskell really scares people off because yes you can learn it but it's it's a you know kind of a vertical learning curve um on that kind of thing as opposed to something like go which is very easy to learn but then you discover it's it's pretty limited. Um, there, there's some things you just can't do or can't do elegantly. Um, so, and that's by design. I mean, you know, the, these this, this none of this is a state secret, right? These are you know what the language designers were were heading for. Um, and you have things like C which I, I worked in for years and years. And you know, the old joke we had there was that's enough rope to shoot yourself in the foot. Um, it is you know as Bjorn calls it a multi paradigm language. You can do anything in it. Should you is another matter entirely. <laughs> um, but so we're always looking for new programming languages. So something like Rust comes out, um, you know, a lot of excitement behind that. Um, that's probably harder to learn than most people think. Um, or at least it's, it, again, it's trade-offs. You have to do a little bit more thinking just to get the bloody thing to compile. But once you've got it, once you sort of pass that, that threshold, you're in pretty good shape. You, you're, you've got some guarantees about what is and is not going to happen to your code once it's been running. Um, they've a lot of excitement lately in the Elixir space, you know, for, for a new-ish language um, that's been doing very well. And we've got a lot of books on different topics in that, um, in that space. And they've got this, you know, live view thing that, there's a lot of excitement about where you can get, you know, really nice real-time websites with a lot less effort and heartache than other comparable tech stacks. So you've got things, you know, there's, there's bits of that that kind of flare up and are interesting. Uh, of course, when Rails first came out, I mean, that was, that was absolutely huge. Um, you know, when that was, that was the first, uh, you know, that was the first big topic that we really were in a position to leverage. And you talk about poaching authors, it was kind of funny. We came with the Rails book and then started coming out with other uh, books on Ruby in the same series. And one of our uh, friend, friendly publishers expressed dismay that every time they went after a leading person in, in the community to write for us, they were already writing us a book and then they, they couldn't poach them because we'd already had them. Um, and that's happened a few times in a few different language sectors uh, because yeah, we everyone likes the shiny new language um and we do publish a fair bit on shiny new languages and it's kind of like the place to go for that leading edge 
cool kind of stuff. You know, we don't have any books on maintaining COBOL legacy systems. You know, we've had very few books on PHP, uh, one or two in a bit, you know, kind of a particular niche topic area. Um, and, you know, for a simple reason, we have nothing against these technologies. I mean, these days, if you're an expert at maintaining COBOL systems, you know, <laughs> cry to me from your yacht in the Caribbean because you know, they're going to pay you really well because it's a very rare skill these days. You know, everyone's kind of died off there. But, you know, for things like, like PHP or even Python, it's such a crowded market. Everyone else has a bazillion books and tutorials and video series and online resources. You know, there's a lot out there already for that. Um, but as you get beyond, you know, sort of the beginner and intermediate level and get into the more advanced, it, practical advanced topics. If you're going for practical theoretical topics, more of a textbook publisher is probably where you're going to land. But if this is stuff you're actually doing for your day job, then that kind of falls to us. Uh, and that's why that's why readers come to us because they're in that you know more advanced anywhere from slightly more advanced to very advanced, but it's their job. It's not a theoretical nicety. It's I need to get this working by next Monday. <laughs> so are you trying like being this dispatcher as we discussed? It's not an easy job, that's for sure. But are you trying to be objective at this position, or you just ignore this this goal and? allow yourself to be subjective. For example, I can give you a practical example. You're a big fan of Agile, not just a fan, you're the founder of this idea. So let's say, and there are many people on the market who have different opinions about Agile. So let's say a very good author with very good style, with very good explanations, come to your, to you as a publisher with a book which criticizes Agile and calls, you know, and, and suggests different approach and uh, criticizes Agile by, by, you know, that's the first, the first objective of the book will be to criticize Agile. Will you try to be objective or you will just say, no, not it's, yet? We would be somewhat, but not completely objective. So they would need to, for me personally, they'd need to convince me of their case, which isn't hard to do. Because the problem with Agile, of course, is no one's actually doing it. And what they are thinking, you know, what they think they're doing, and I've said this before, right? People come to me like, oh, we're agile. It's like, oh, really? They're like, yes. You find out they're doing half of the scrum practices badly and they use JIRA. And that's, yes, we're agile, baby. It's like, mm, not so much. Um, so I'll be the first to say that what, what people think they're doing is wrong and is wrongheaded. And I'll be the first to say that agile is, was never designed to be a perfect fit in every scenario. And if you look at something like Dave Snowden's Kinevin model, you can see why that is. It's like, it works in the complicated domain. It's not a good fit for these other three domains. And you, you are better off using something else in here. So like anything else, it's about context. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I would wanna see. So, so hypothetically in a book like that, I would wanted to see a discussion of any method really. It says, well, here's where it works and why. Here's where it doesn't work and why. And here's what you might want to do in this case instead. And here's what you might want to do in that case instead. Anyone who comes to me with a proposal that says, well, here is the software engineering process. You just throw developers in, turn the crank and, and software shoots out the other side. I'll delete it out of hand because I know they're full of crap because <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? It is a complex multidisciplinary subject filled with nuance and limited understanding. And oh, by the way, we've only been doing this thing for 
depending where you count, you know, 1947, early 50s, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, some short number of decades, nothing compared to medicine, legal law, you know, things we've been doing for thousands of years, and we've got a little bit more adept at. Um, we've only been doing this, you know, less than one human lifetime, and it's still embryonic. We, we, don't, we don't know the best way to do stuff. And, and interestingly, you mentioned the, the, the manifesto. I think everybody forgot the very first line. The very first line of the manifesto says, we are uncovering better ways of developing software. It doesn't say we discovered the holy grail you know, written in, in gold gilt and, and, you know, on a, on a tablet, it's, we're discover we're uncovering, we're discovering, we're uncovering better ways of doing this. And I think where the industry kind of fell down was we stopped looking and said, oh, well, we'll just use Scrum. We'll use a ticketing system. That, that, that's all we need. And, you know, that's kind of a favorite pet topic of mine. I'm, I'm diverging wildly, but it's fun. Um, Scrum is a lightweight project management framework. That's all it is. It, uh, there's, okay, well, that's nice. That's about 10% of the problem space you've got to address. What about all the rest of it, <laughs> right? It doesn't cover that. You know, you have to have something like XP. You have to have the, the good foundation of solid version control. And if you're doing continuous integration, you know, don't tell me you're using PRs and, you know, this kind of nonsense and, and you know, having these long running feature branches. And, you know, here's a good, this is a good technology. Here's Git, right? Version control, wonderful. There's ways you can use it well. And there's ways you can use it poorly. It's not the technology's fault, either way. It's, it's what we do with it. So if you send a book and tell me to do something stupid with Git, yes, we will call you on it and say, no, no that's, that's, a, that's a poor idea. You're, you're giving out what we think is bad advice. If you can justify it in this context, especially, okay, let's talk about it. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of nuance out there. We, we try to encourage authors to explore, especially on a methodology book, when is this good advice? When should, when should I not do this? Where does this fall apart? Where are the edges? You know, I was listening to a few of your talks on Agile, and I completely agree with you on one important point you're making, that people are doing a lot of practices, but they're not doing one core practice. They don't deliver incrementally. They don't deliver earlier. They deliver like when it's ready, then they start delivering. And the question is why it's happening. Not enough books, not enough education. What's the problem with the industry? in general so how long do we have um <laughs> uh, yes yes um i had i had I, I had forgotten about this story i was actually looking at something this morning um and, and i ran across this and I, it reminded me it was exactly what you're talking about a couple of years ago i was uh offering some talks and workshops for a team and they were they were told that they could not do any incremental or iterative development at all. They were allowed by management to do a single gold master at the end of a multi-year development project. No review, no feedback before then, not even internally. And I had discussed it with them. I said, well, you realize the whole point of Agile is feedback and fast feedback so that you can steer. They said, well, didn't matter. This was what the sponsors, the executives demanded. They wanted one delivery at the end of the project. Like, okay, fine. Well, let's see how that works out. So I, I went on, you know, did, you know, spoke elsewhere, did other clients, whatnot, year or two went by. And um, 
I, I stumbled across this story. And I was like, oh, I should find out, you know, what happened to these to these folks. And so I emailed back and said, oh, hey, guys, you're just just checking in. Want to see how this was going. And the email bounced because the domain didn't exist anymore. So that's <laughs> how that went. Um, why does this happen? So I have a theory. The, and again, this goes back to the newness of the field. So at some point in the 80s, 90s, into the aughts, you know, every mom and pop business, every small manufacturer, every large manufacturer, every company got to a point where they're like, dang it, we need this, we need software. And, they, you know, they're, they're not experts. They, we, there's this thing. Look, they've got software over there at our competitor. We need software. I don't know what is software. Let's buy one. I want to buy a software, and and hook it up to an internet. <laughs> right? You know. So you know, you've got you've got folks running large businesses very successfully who are like suddenly this is something they need, and they don't know. They never read Fred Brooks. They never read the Pragmatic Programmer. It's just a thing they need. So. You do it like any other thing you need in, in big business. You set up an annual budget and, and you have managers and sub-managers and, and squad leaders and team leaders, and you build this whole bureaucracy around it. And, you know, you treat it like a manufacturing project because we've kind of figured out how to do that. Um, but, it, but so what I draw as a comparison is if you look at the beginning of industrialization, when we were just getting, you know, the idea of machines to do labor, it was a horror show, right? You know, you get, you get that, what was that lovely phrase about the dark satanic mills in, in, in England, you know, with, with the coal mining and the, the factories and everything. You had the Triangle Shirtwaist fire disaster in the US, all these people burned to death because we hadn't figured out you needed exits. Um, right, so all these kind of, you know, you know, children getting maimed and killed and, you know, it's like, it'd be like going in as a fast food worker, knowing that the soft serve ice cream machine could rip your limbs off at any time just because of the way it was constructed, right? That, that was the world they lived in, because uh, it was new. We didn't really clue out as a society that we needed to be a little bit kinder about workers' hours and safety conditions and guards, and hey, maybe throwing young children in the middle of something with spinning cogs and wheels was not a great idea. Um, but it took time to sort of figure all that out and come to terms with it and you know, make it so that we could use technology without it destroying society too badly. Um, whether we ever succeeded on that is another question, but, you know, it was a lot worse uh, early on. And I think that's where we are with software development, with computing. These are the early days still. This, this is the phase of the technology where people are getting rims lipped off because we don't have proper safety and security. We don't know how to integrate it well into society. And if you look, you know, especially at the, uh, the disinformation and all the issues around the pandemic in the last several years, it's getting a lot worse as the tech gets more powerful and our understanding of how to integrate it into society without killing ourselves. We're not there yet. You know, and I'm, you know, it took a while when the industrial revolution, it's going to take a while in the information revolution. Uh, these things don't happen overnight. We'll figure it out at some point, or at least mitigate it to the point where, you know, we can get by and, and, you know, it, it's not going to wreck us, but um, it's going to take a while. My final question to you. So after these 20 years of 
telling people about agile and and seeing how people misunderstand that and and experiencing this uh, lack of uh, adoption of this really good concept and originally but as you said as we all see what's happening now people just take some practices but they don't understand the full idea so do you still believe in this idea you still think that this is the right idea i i do with with some caveats the the important thing the message that got lost and the important message i think that still needs to be out there is you need an ecosystem not a process there's no process that will ever work for software development because software development is a complex adaptive system. Processes are basically linear. So you're trying to use a linear tool in a non-linear system. It's never going to work. There's no substitute for talented, experienced developers. That's the big problem. And we keep trying to find some shortcut to that. There isn't one. Not yet. Not in the next 50 years. AI, maybe that's a wild card. We'll see what happens sometime down the road. I still can't get through self-checkout uh, successfully. So we've got some time. We got some progress to make on that front. Um, but, you know, somebody early on in the Agile movement had a great example. And I, I don't remember who said this, so apologies. I can't credit it. But the picture this visual that you're trying to make it across an unknown cave in the dark, pitch dark. You're down in a cave with a tiny little flashlight. Now, do you want to go running full speed in any particular direction? No. You want to take tiny steps, swing the flashlight around, look where you put your foot before you go. You want to take small, right? Get fast feedback, look where you're going. And instead, what we have is people in the same cave saying, okay, this worked great with the, the one person, you know, with the flashlight, they did wonderful for us. Now we're going to scale this up and we're going to bring in a tandem tractor trailer fully loaded. And, you know, you can't go less than 80 miles an hour, hit the gas, go. And what do you, and I, I see him laughing on the, on the, on the, the zoom here. Right. And how do you think that works out? And that's exactly what happens. And then you see in the news, another $20 million disaster uh, project that never saw the light of day or, you know, this, this, this uh, giant data breach at some uh, company that we hold dear or whatever it might be. Um, and that's exactly right. It's like something that works well for a small number of skilled people works well for a small number of skilled people. You're not going to scale that to 50 teams or 100 teams or 1,000 teams unless you're really good at doing that. And not a lot of companies are. But they will be. Let's hope for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I find it funny. It's like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a cliche to say, but if you look at startups with a small development team, and, you know, really high motivation, a lot of talent, small team, small number of communication paths, they typically do very well. They typically kick the butt of a large bureaucratic company with dozens, hundreds of teams that can't get out of its own way. And that is always true. That is always going to be true. Um, you know, barring some, some advance in AI that we can't see on the horizon yet, that's how it's going to be. All right, that's quite positive to hear that from you, the author of the idea, one of the authors of the idea. So we will stay positive. Many thanks for coming for this uh, for this podcast. Again, a lot of respect for what you've done to us programmers, the books which you wrote, the ideas which you introduced. Thanks a lot. See you sometime next time. Thanks so much for having me.